I'm going to read from Exodus, and you can follow along with me in your copy of the scripture, or we're going to have the verses up on the screens. I'm going to read Exodus uh, chapter 8, uh, just a couple of verses here. Uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 16 through verse 19. Um, after we read it, we'll have just a brief time of prayer to settle our hearts for the hearing of his word, and then we'll have this morning's message. So Exodus eight sixteen through 19. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. They could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. All right, we're in Exodus beginning in chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, and we're going to look at quite a large section, but I don't want to worry you. We're not going to read the whole thing. That might take uh, the entire two hours we have set aside for the message. I'm kidding. We would never go under two hours. Exodus eight sixteen through ten twenty nine. Let me just kind of give us where we're at. Historically, we're about 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. Israel is enslaved to Egypt. And in Exodus 8.16, we've already covered the first two plagues, as we often refer to them. Really, it's three. Three things have happened. Uh, Moses and Aaron turned their staffs into snakes. Pharaoh's uh, magicians turned their staffs into snakes. And then Aaron's staff ate the Egyptian snakes. And that's kind of a funny story. And then there was two more plagues. The Nile turned to blood, and the frogs came. And in particular, about these three things that have already happened, these were things that Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate, were able to copy. And so that was very helpful, we've mentioned. When you have uh, piles of frogs around and your magicians are so helpful to create more piles of frogs, a real helpful magician would take away frogs, but regardless, we know they were false miracles. And now we begin the rest of the plagues. We're going to cover the rest of the plagues in uh, Exodus without getting yet to the final plague. And the reason we set these aside is these are ones that the Pharaoh's magicians could not replicate. And I want us to think about, there's a number of things we could look at in this very large section of Scripture. I want us to look at Pharaoh's response to God in regard to these plagues. And so I've titled the message this way. This is the title trouble with God. And what I'm going to do is I want us to look at the work of God in Egypt from Pharaoh's perspective. And if you were Pharaoh, would you admit you have trouble with God? You do. It's going to ruin your country if you're not careful. And so what we want to do is look at these occurrences, these plagues from Pharaoh's perspective. So just let's fly over the top of this. If you're in your Bible, you can look with me. And your Bible is, is probably similar to mine. It has little headings that says which plague happened. So the first thing that happens is what we read. There's a bunch of gnats 
and we don't know exactly which insect it is, but it's a gnat with a silent G. You don't say gnat. These are some kind of pesky thing where you would be doing this all day. They probably would be nibbling on you. You wake up in the morning and with all these little itchy sores, very frustrating. After that, there's a plague of flies everywhere. And so these flies swarm into the houses, they swarm into the cupboards, they swarm into the refrigerators. Well, you know what I mean. And Egypt, it says, was ruined by the swarms uh, of the flies. After the flies came, then there was a, a plague on the livestock. And we see here a beginning of a separation between Egypt and Israel. Now the plagues begin to only affect Egyptians and not the people of Israel who were in Egypt, but they were in the land of Goshen. So the livestock die for Egypt and all of Israel's livestock what happens to them? They continue mooing and eating grass and being livestock. So the livestock of the Egyptians are struck. After that, there's a livestock of boils. Aaron and Moses go to the kiln, and they take the ash out of the kilns, and they throw it into the air like LeBron James. Before a game, he throws the chalk into the air. Nobody's seen that? Google it, okay? They throw it into the air, and then all of a sudden on everybody the Egyptians only, boils develop on them, like these awful sores that you scratch. And it even says that the magicians of Egypt could no longer stand before Pharaoh because their boils were so bad. Finally, or I should say the seventh plague comes is hail. And so they are told, the Egyptians are told, hail is going to fall, there will be thunderstorms, fire in the skies, lightning, and hail would destroy anything that is not in shelter. And in fact, in this plague, they're given a warning. Get your animals that are still alive under shelter. Get your servants out of the field. Get under shelter. Those who heeded the warning survived. Those who stayed out in the field were killed by the hail. After the hail comes the locusts. So what plants might have survived the hail, very little of it, the locusts come and clean it out. Locusts like have never been seen before cover every square inch of the land and eat every vegetation that there is. And in fact, in this particular plague, the advisors of Pharaoh say, your country is ruined, man. I mean, it's done. You've got to figure out how to get rid of these people. So the locusts come and the locusts go. Then finally, in the last plague we'll just look at briefly here is a plague of darkness darkness that could be felt. Darkness came on the land. This was a common understanding, and then and even now, this darkness was a God's judgment. It was also a judgment sort of on their worship of the sun god. God could, at a whim, turn off their god of the sun. And so what I want us to do is look at these plagues and look at how Pharaoh responds to his trouble with God. His trouble with God. Let's I might put it this way in Pharaoh's perspective of God when he's experiencing trouble with God. He might summarize God in this way, and I know you would never do this. I'm being sarcastic. I think Pharaoh would say God is a bit unreasonable. The trouble with God is he's a bit unreasonable. Think about it this way. I don't know. The book industry has changed a lot over the last few years. It used to be you would get a book at a bookstore, 
or maybe at a library. I said that slow, library. I don't know. Kids these days have heard of libraries. But nowadays, you can buy a book from Amazon. And then some of you, if you're younger enough, buy a book. You mean like a thing you hold? No, I read it on my phone or on my iPad or on my Kindle or on my Nook. I want to carry a thousand books in my backpack. I don't want to carry one book. So everything has changed. Early on in this, a publisher came to Amazon and said to Amazon, we think you're being unfair with what you're paying us for our books. We want to renegotiate the fee that we're paid when you sell our books and sell the digital copies of our books on your Kindles. And Amazon said, okay, great. We won't sell your stuff. And this publisher said, fine. Toodaloo. Three months goes by, and this publisher comes back to Amazon and says, we haven't sold anything. We need to sell books. That's our whole thing. That's our whole job. What do you want from us? See, the publisher thought it was a negotiation. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent about that situation, but the publisher thought, hey, we'll just take our books out of Amazon, and Amazon knew you don't have customers without us. You have improperly understood your position in this relationship. And this is precisely what has happened to Pharaoh. He thinks he's in a position to negotiate with God on the terms of what ought to happen. What is God asking for from Pharaoh? He is saying, I want you to take, let my people go out in the wilderness, a three-day journey, all their families, all their children, all their livestock, all their belongings to worship me. And Pharaoh knew exactly what God was asking. He was saying, my people will never be returning to you. They will serve me, they will not serve you. They are coming out of servitude to you, and they will now serve me, the one living God. And Pharaoh thinks, what I'm going to do, I understand God's ask here, I'm going to try to negotiate this down a bit. Look at Exodus 8, 25. Exodus 8, 25, the plague of flies is swarming about. I don't know what this talk conversation would have looked like. It would have looked like a lot of this. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron, and he said, Go, sacrifice to your God within Egypt. So this is a typical negotiating tactic. God has asked for all the people, all the animals, way far away. I'll give you everything, just do it here. I'll give you everything we want. The only thing I'm saying is you can't leave Egypt. And Moses said, no, no, that's never going to happen. Unfortunately, Pharaoh, you think this is a negotiation? This is not. This is what's going to happen, and how soon are you going to get on board? Look down at Exodus 10, chapter 8. He redefines the terms of his negotiation. This is uh, when the uh, locusts have eaten what remained of their produce. Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, calls them back in. Okay, how about you go and serve the Lord? But now who exactly among your people are going to go? And they said, everyone's going. All the flocks are going. Everything's going. Nothing's going to be left behind. And Pharaoh says, no, how about just the men among you go? Leave your kids here. Leave your flocks here. Leave your wives here. The fellas can go out on a men's retreat. Go out, beat on drums, paint their faces, whatever you want to do. And God said, I'm sorry. You thought this was a negotiation. Pharaoh wasn't done yet. Exodus 10, 24. This is 
during the plague of darkness. Pharaoh called into Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones can go. Your wives can go. Only leave your flocks behind. So the idea here is you go out, and maybe you'll take your sacrificial lamb. He's not, obviously, he knows they're going to sacrifice animals, but he's saying, take the sacrificial animals, leave everything else behind, because he knows they're going to have to come back. And Moses says, no, I'm sorry, we're taking all the animals. In fact, he says, not a hoof will be left behind, because we've got to take everything. We're not sure exactly what God's going to ask us to do, so we're taking it all. Pharaoh, this isn't a negotiation. The trouble with God, Pharaoh would say, is he's a bit unreasonable. He won't work with the guy. He's trying to be reasonable. God is just being stubborn. And the reason is this. God had a plan. His plan was to draw his people out of slavery into redemption, and there is no compromise on that. There is no stopping that. God is not going to change his plan, alter his plan, or think of something different. It's when are you going to be on board, Pharaoh? trouble with God is he's unreasonable. He doesn't negotiate. Now, I know you would never negotiate with God. You're trying not to laugh. What day is it? Negotiating with God day. God, if you will, I will. If you will, I will. But here's what worship is, and that's what God was calling his people to do. He said, come out and worship me. Worship is not negotiating with God. Worship is what does God want everywhere all the time. Worship is looking at every moment of my life and every place of my life and saying in every moment and every place, God has a desire for me to live in the freedom of someone who has been saved from slavery to sin. And what does worship look like? At my home? What does worship look like at work? What does worship look like at church? What does worship look like in my neighborhood with my family? What we tend to do is this we say, God, I will give you church, I'll give you prayer before meals if you'll give me work and leisure. How does that sound to you, God? And guess what? The trouble with God is he's a bit unreasonable. He said, I will see your church and prayer before meals. I will also take your leisure and your work and your family and every breath you take. And we say, God, you got to work with me here. And God says, absolutely. I want you to worship me in every moment of your life, in every place of your life. The reason this seems unreasonable is because we don't think receiving and obtaining God is best. We think having God over here is good so that I can get what I want over here. And what God is saying is, I've got a better idea. How about if you have me in every place of your life? What if the best thing you could have at work is the knowledge that your work is an expression of work, an expression of worship to the God who saves you? What if your family is an expression of worship to the God who saved you or your life in your neighborhood? Instead of living a life that says, I need to be good over here, to get blessed over here, what we would say is, I want to experience the worship of God in the entire sphere of my life. And that's what Pharaoh missed. He wanted to give them a bit of God, but keep most of it for himself. And the trouble with God is he doesn't negotiate. I don't want to compare God to a toddler, but it's what comes to mind. What is the one toy a toddler wants to play with? 
the one the other kid is playing with. And I'm not saying to- God is fits like a toddler does. But in our life, what we do is we squirrel these little parts of our life away, our work, our leisure, our hobbies, our family, whatever it might be, and we say, well, this is, this is mine. God, you get all that. And what does God do? Oh, I want that. Oh, I, so you want to keep that for yourself? Oh, it's on. And we say, that's unreasonable, God. What do I get? And God says, you get me in every area of your life, and that's the best thing you could get. Worship is looking at the areas of my life and saying, what does it look like to submit to the who God is and what he is like in these areas? What does it mean to worship God at work? All of us work in different places or work in the home, work outside the home, and that may take some thinking. What does it look like to worship God as a husband or as a wife or as a child or as a parent? What does it look like to worship God as a neighbor? I think it's worth taking time to think about that. And negotiating with God isn't going to serve us well. In fact, negotiating with God like Pharaoh is a sign that we think we're on the same level as God, and it's a peer-to-peer relationship, and we fail to understand that he is God and we are not. All right, let's keep moving on. Trouble with God is, number one, he's a bit unreasonable. He doesn't negotiate, and the reason is because the best thing he can offer us is himself, and he gives us himself in every area of our life. Second trouble with God, as we'll see from Pharaoh, trouble with God is he doesn't recognize gifted leadership. Trouble with God is he doesn't recognize our giftedness. I don't know if you've ever taught a child to ride a bike. Generally what you do, I say generally because I have no idea what I'm doing, but you get them a bike and they have training wheels on it and they kind of get used to it. At a certain point you take the training wheels off and then you do the, the, might call it the dad or the mom sprint, they're riding it, and you're holding their seat, right? And you're holding them, trying to keep them steady until they kind of get their balance. Now, when you're first starting doing this, they have no idea what they're doing. They could be leaning at a 45-degree angle. You're holding them up with all the strength uh, that you might have. But what's the kid saying when you're running behind them, holding them up with all of their weight? I'm doing it! I'm doing it! I'm doing it! And they don't see that your fingertips are bleeding from gripping onto the seat. And you're back there, you're right, you're doing it! Yeah. Let's go home. The kid doesn't see the parent's hand back there. And this is what happens with us. We're riding along. God, don't you see how great I'm doing? He's running along behind us. I'm I'm sorry, what? Let's look at Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, going backwards again, and we're going to do this a couple of times. Just look at three or four little areas, and then I want to draw some historical perspective from the book of Genesis to show us something Pharaoh had missed. The magicians said to him after the gnats were there, the, the, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them. What this means is he said, God can bring his worst. I know what I'm doing. I am Pharaoh. I am a God too, and I know what I am doing. I have a land that has plenty of livestock. I have a land that has plenty of people. I have a land that has plenty of food. I am a gifted and powerful leader, and God needs to recognize that. So what does God then do? Exodus 9, 7. His livestock perish. All of his livestock perish. Maybe a few remained that God left there to be struck by hail. 
And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Wait a second, Mr. Gifted Leader. Who's overseeing Israel's livestock? Not you. Your livestock are dead. Theirs are not. Then just a little bit further down, he says, The kiln is emptied as the dust is thrown into the air, and they're covered with boils. How is the gifted leader handling the health care system in his country? And then just a little further down in Exodus 10, 12, the locusts have emptied the land of any edible plant. The Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out, eat every plant, everything that the hail might have left. And his advisors went to Pharaoh and said, you've got to call them. Don't you see Egypt is ruined? Now, we have to understand where all this prosperity came from. Joseph, some 400 years earlier, had been sold into slavery in Egypt. He interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh understood at that time that there was going to be a great famine. And what did Joseph say to Pharaoh at that time? Save up food for seven years, so that at the end of seven years, you have food in plenty. And so they did that. And Joseph then was elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. And as the, as the famine hit, and this is in Genesis chapter 47, the people of Egypt came to the, the storehouses and they spent all of their money on the food that Joseph had stored. So none of the people had money. Pharaoh had all the money. Then it says they came the next year and they said, we have no money. And Joseph said, trade for me your livestock and I'll give you food. So that year they traded all their livestock and the Bible says in Genesis 47, Pharaoh then owned all the livestock in Egypt. The next year, there was still no food, and the people came to Pharaoh, and what did they say? There's no money, there's no livestock, and Joseph said, give me your land in exchange for food. And at that time, the, there was no longer then any private property ownership in Egypt. The Pharaoh owned it all, and the rule was for the people of Egypt, when you harvest your land, Pharaoh gets one-fifth or 20%, you keep the rest to eat and replant for the next year. 400 years earlier, was it Pharaoh's brilliant leadership that brought him livestock, brought him food, brought him real estate? No. It was God's divine work through his people and through Joseph. 400 years later, Pharaoh has forgotten this. He's got plenty of livestock, plenty of land, plenty of food, and he assumes it's because of his gifted leadership. The frustrating part is that God does not recognize Pharaoh's giftedness. And so these plagues devastate these things. The livestock are gone. The food is gone. The real estate is gone. And now even the service that he had from Israel making bricks has resulted in sores from the kiln. The trouble with God is he doesn't recognize gifted leadership. The fact is God is totally in charge. God is completely in charge, 100%, and we can put it this way, hopefully without sounding too rude, God does not share his glory. He's done all the heavy lifting, and he's done all the light lifting. He's done all the lifting. And then he does not come here to put that upon us in a guilt trip, but he does expect us to recognize we're not the gifted one in the situation. 
We cannot earn worship for ourselves that is due to God. Well, God, certainly you must recognize my faithfulness in this matter. And God is saying, as he's holding onto that bike seat, um, I'll recognize my faithfulness, and you can worship me for it. God does not want us to worship ourselves for worship that ought to go to him. That's a form of idolatry where we say, I'm the most important thing in my world. And God is saying, I'm the most important thing in your world. What does worship look like if we don't want to say, as Pharaoh did, God ought to recognize my gifted leadership? Worship says this, what has God done in my life? What has God done in your life? We might put it this way, God has done everything in your life that is worth being done. God has done everything in your life that has significant value in him. We have to understand the difference here. This is not God making up the, the, the ways we sort of fell short. You know, I did a really good job serving the Lord here at work, but he sort of made up the difference, carried me over the finish line. And God said, no, you sat on the sidelines, and I carried you the whole way. Understanding that God is completely in charge is recognizing even the parts of my life that I feel like maybe I'm participating in, it was God's goodness to give me the opportunity to do that. Everything in our lives that is worth having and being done, God is the one who did it. What we aren't doing is saying, I have served God well here, and so he has blessed me over here. That's what Pharaoh's trying to do. Negotiate with God good terms. I'll serve you here, so I get what I want over here. And God is saying, no, I'm in charge, and I'm doing everything that ought to be done. What worship can be in our life is this. We can praise the Lord that he has done it all. We can praise the Lord that he has done it all at our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church. He is the one who does all of the work. Think of the thief on the cross. He died next to Jesus in moments, maybe a few hours before his death. He put faith in Christ for salvation, and Jesus said it this way to the thief, Today you will see me in paradise. How then did the thief work out his salvation in his life then? What was the rest of his Christian life like? Well, he frankly couldn't do a lot. He was sort of secured to a cross. The thing is that's funny is we think our life is different than his. We think, man, I'm lucky we're not nailed to a cross because now I can really use my life for God. And God says, what's funny is you think it's different. You've got a little bit more time and we're a little bit more comfortable. We're not doing more for God than that thief did on the cross. What we need to do a better job of doing in our hearts is in humility recognizing God is the one who did all the work all the way through. Now I should say here, just by way of pausing, this is bothering many of us. I know once I say it like that, you say, oh no, this isn't bothering me at all. And that's proof it is. Because none of us like this idea that we're not participating in. None of us like this. It drives us nuts. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, sure, God, God saves me, but that, now it's my job for the rest of my life to earn that back. Dang it. No. It's your job to worship. You spend the rest of your life realizing you don't have a whole lot to offer. Well, but that's, that seems like a pretty low view of me. No, no, no. Finding ourselves in Christ is the highest view of ourselves. 
Finding ourselves in Christ where we say he did it all, that's a pretty high view because now I'm an heir to the kingdom of God. And you want to try and earn it? I don't think that's a good idea. The trouble with God is he doesn't recognize our gifted leadership. I might put it this way. There's a common phrase that hopefully has been debunked. But you've heard that famous verse, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible, just so you know if you're looking for it. The Bible would say it this way, I might suggest. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. The trouble with God is he doesn't understand I'm not helpless. I just need a boost. And what God is saying, the trouble is you don't see. You need so much more than a boost. Worship says, I will recognize that God is doing it all. Okay, last little observation. Trouble with God. First one was this. He's a bit unreasonable. He doesn't negotiate. Second one is, he doesn't recognize gifted leadership because, frankly, he thinks he's totally in charge. The reason he thinks that is because he is. And finally, the trouble with God is he helps in unnecessarily limited ways. Trouble with God is he helps in unnecessarily limited ways. Uh, if a guy gets injured playing football, especially nowadays, there's a lot of focus on um, concussions in football. And really, the only treatment for a concussion is don't get another one. So you've got to wait it out. And so the only fix when you get a concussion is to wait a, a, a fair amount of time so that the symptoms of your first concussion is gone. But uh, football players don't like that. What do they want? want to get back in the game, a better help would be is even though I've suffered a concussion, make it so I can play again. It doesn't seem like the right kind of help. The help you need is to sit out of the game. Look at Exodus 9, 19. Exodus 9, 19. In particular, this is the hail. <clears throat> hail is going to fall. There's going to be a great thunderstorm, and this is what Moses says. Therefore, send... Get your livestock, all that you have in the field, into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, they hurried their slaves and their livestock into houses. But whoever did not excuse me, pay attention to the word of the Lord, well, they left their slaves and livestock out in the field. The trouble with God is, he says, there's a great hailstorm coming, and his help is this. Take shelter. And those of us who maybe are a little more honest with how uh, we think about these things might say this. I've got a better idea, God. Don't send the hail. So, so God, we're, we're square that the hail is going to be a problem. Your fix, although handy, is not helpful a fix would be, God, if you didn't send the hail at all. That would be an appropriate fix. So we appreciate the help, God, but you know what would be great is if you could kind of turn that up a notch and actually provide help that does something. He says, get shelter. Those who feared the Lord, what'd they do? They took shelter. Those who didn't fear the Lord, they left their animals and their servants out in the field. The hail came, and they needed new animals and new servants. And it's frustrating for us because we say, God, here's a problem we have, and you've offered help, but the help doesn't really fix the problem I have. You're saying to take shelter in you. What I'd really like to you to do is take away the problem that causes me to need shelter. Let's look at that just for a minute. 
Mark 4.35. Mark 4.35. You can turn there, just listen as I uh, look at it. On a particular day, evening had come, and Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross the Sea of Galilee, and they left the crowd, and they took out in a boat, and there's some other boats with them, and then a great windstorm arose, and the waves <clears throat> were breaking on the boat, so the boat was filling with water. Jesus, though, was asleep in the stern. He's taking a nap. You stop right there before you get all up in the disciples' business. How many of you have prayed and you swear he's asleep in the boat? No, God, seriously, we got problems. Our problems have problems, and you would be awesome if you would wake up. That would be, that would be fantastic. And Jesus sleeping in the boat. They woke uh, Jesus up, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, knock it off. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why were you afraid? I want you to pay attention to what he didn't say. He didn't say, see, I can fix your problems. What was the issue? Why were you afraid of the winds? What's the worst that could happen? We drown? Two problems with that, Jesus would say. Nobody dies till I say it's time. And when it's time, they're not going to miss it. And second, what's the word? Are you worried about getting wet? Aren't you fishermen? The problem was not the wind and the waves. The problem was there were two scary things in their life in that moment. The creator of the universe and the wind and waves, and they were afraid of the wrong one. He said, the guy sleeping was the one you should have been worshiping, not the wind and the waves. Worship in that moment would have been, so we drown, he needs his rest. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who could do this thing for us? One other verse over in Matthew 27, 45, and then we'll summarize a couple of things. The final plague before the Passover plague is darkness, and I want to connect that here with a moment in Christ's life. Matthew 27, 45, now he was on the cross, and from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, at that moment, he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is in the dark, and we must understand this darkness as judgment from God, just as it was for Egypt. So in Egypt, God's judgment comes in darkness, and on Christ, our judgment comes on him in darkness, and in that moment, he is saying to God, why have you forsaken me? He knows why. He's saying it for our benefit. God has forsaken me so he might not forsake you. I am in your darkness so that you can stay in the light. Jesus is taking our darkness for us. He is taking our judgment for us. So we have to understand this. Last night, I don't know if it was raining hard at your house. Anybody have a rain at their house? I was trying to get some sleep and... I could hear it raining outside. And I love that. Don't you love that when you're inside, especially when you're trying to get some sleep and the rain is just pouring outside? It's cold, it's windy, it's raining, and you're inside in the warmth. That's nice. Here's what you need to understand about shelter. What's nice about shelter is we don't endure what we should. The problem with shelter is the shelter does. 
So what Jesus is saying is, I want you to come under my shelter. It doesn't mean there won't be trouble. What it means is, I'm going to bear it for you. The darkness you should have taken, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wounds we should have borne, his body was torn. The blood we should have shed, his blood was shed. The judgment of the darkness, the judgment of the hail, the judgment of everything that might separate us from God goes on the shelter. And what God is calling us to do is say, come under the shelter. The beauty of this is not merely avoiding the judgment we ought to receive. The beauty of this is we have relationship with one who would provide us shelter. The psalmist wrote it best. This is Psalm 91. And I'm going to read the whole psalm because it's, the best way of saying it. Psalm 91, it's, I think it's only 75 verses, so it's not long. <laughs> he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings will you find refuge his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that, arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near to your tent. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest your, uh, you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion, on the adder, the young lion and the serpent will you trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, God says about us. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What does worship look like when God helps us? we understand and recognize that he gave himself to fix the one problem we actually face, which is separation from him because of our rebellion, our disobedience, and from the fact that we all die at some point. Worship says, God, I do have a lot of stuff in my life, but one thing I don't have to worry about in Christ is where I'm going. Death has no victory. Sin has no claim on me any longer. I am in you, my shelter. What does worship look like for you in this moment? Is to take shelter in Christ. Now, some of us just don't like this idea of trusting Jesus and becoming righteous. We certainly are, we're, in fact, we're insistent. There must be something I must do to earn his favor. I, I must be good in some way. Well, I get, that would work if you were any good at it. And I'm just quoting the Bible here, but you're lousy at being good. And that's a paraphrase. 
And what the Bible says is if in faith we come to Christ as our shelter and say, you know what? God, the hail should fall on me. The darkness should cover me. The boils, the gnats, the flies, all that stuff is mine because I have rebelled against you. I have in the hardness of my heart said, God, you're not that helpful. God, you're a bit unreasonable. But God, you're the only help I need. I trust you to make me righteous. The problem we have is we undervalue what God has done in giving us new life in him. The trouble with God is he only saves us for all of eternity. And he hasn't saved us from what we're worried about on Friday. All right, just two or three ideas and then we'll close. First of all, this starts with humility. That's what Pharaoh lacked. To come to the Lord for the for the salvation he offers us and to free ourselves from these things where we view that God is nothing but trouble. We have to come to him in humility and admit that the trouble we have in our life with God is not with God, it's with our own heart. We've decided that we're the judge and jury on whether or not God is handling things correctly. We call that repentance when we come to God and say, God, your ways are better than my ways. I trust you more than I trust me. Maybe just a couple of ideas here. Do you put God in timeout? You ever give God a timeout corner? Say, listen, God, tell you what. You sit there, and when I need you, I'll come get you. That's what Pharaoh was trying to do, telling God where he should exist in his life. In humility and repentance, we ought to come to God and say, guess what, God, you get the whole thing. You get my drive to work. You get my leisure, you get my entertainment, you get my family, you get my neighborhood, you get my work, you get, you get it all. God, what does it mean to worship you with my whole life? What does it mean to worship you at home, at work, at church, on recreation? Maybe it's time to call God out of the timeout quarter and give him the whole thing. Maybe another way to come to God in confession is, do you glory in God's work? Or do you, are you thankful that God has blessed your giftedness? Somewhere in our heart, the prayer, arrogance of our heart says, I've done most of it, and I'm thankful God kind of sprinkled the fairy dust to make it work. And there might be a place in our heart where we say, you know what? I recognize now God's been holding the seat of my bike the whole time. If he hadn't have been there, I would have crashed and burned. It's a place for humility to come to God and say, God, the problem is not that you have failed to recognize my giftedness. The problem is I have failed to recognize yours through Christ. And finally, I think most importantly, here's the last thing we ought to think about is do you need God's help? Frankly, this, do you need God's forgiveness? Are you still burdened with the sin that you've committed? Well, you're not going to work your way out of it. The only way to achieve righteousness is by trusting in him.